Hi, I'm Brett Johnson, former United States most wanted cyber criminal, now good guy. Or as the United States Secret Service called me, the original internet godfather. Now, what do you have to do to get a title like that? 39 felonies, because 38 just ain't enough. A place on the United States most wanted list. I escaped from prison, and I built and ran the first organized cybercrime community. It was called Shadow Crew. It was a precursor to today's darknet and darknet markets. It laid the foundation for the way modern financial cybercrime channels operate today. Let me tell you, yes, you do go to prison for that shit. Deservedly so. Now look, there's a whole story behind all that. But we ain't got time for that today. Why? Well, because today, right now, it's time for the Brett Johnson Show. Today's episode, The Three Necessities of Cybercrime, when we come back. Okay, so we are back to the Brett Johnson Show. Today's episode, The Three Necessities of Cybercrime. Basically, what takes a $1,000 week crime and turns it into a $2.5 million cash out? We're going to talk about that today. We're going to explain why when you or your organization is victimized, that it's never a single attacker. It's always a group of people working together to victimize you or your company. Now, that being said, there's a few things to talk about before we get to that. Ah, as, as I've said in the past, hey, I, I read the comments on YouTube, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, wherever I'm posting something, I read the comments. A lot of the times I respond to those comments, unless you're an asshole, I'm going to respond to the comments. And be, to be honest, if you are an ass, I'll probably respond to those as well. Just as long as you're not, not just completely left-filled or saying something stupid. You know, there are no stupid questions, only stupid people. So as long as you're not being a complete dumbass, I'll probably respond. If I don't respond, I, I may just overlook at it or it's your fault that I've not responded. Yes, you are to blame for some of that stuff. You know who you are. But, you know, there's been a few people that have mentioned, um, you know, they, they are always talking about, well, Brett, you're too loud. You need to calm down, man. Well, the thing is, is that if I'm going to do this show, and I plan on doing this show for a while, this show is not only for people who are viewing it, but it's for me, too. It's this release mechanism. It also helps me... Uh, think things out in real time because I'm really good about doing that. I'll start explaining something and I'll sometimes have an aha moment while I'm talking. I do it on stage. I do it in consulting gigs. I do it uh, on a podcast. I've done that before as well. So I like to have that type of uh, uh, outlet to do that, but it's also kind of a therapy session for me. And I know I get loud and I, I joke around a lot, but there'll be episodes where I'm not doing that and it's, or, or moments during an episode where I'm not doing that, where I'm actually having kind of a therapeutic session for Brett. But the thing is, is that it's also something that I do for me, not just for the people who listen. And it's something that if I'm going to do this consistently, and I am, I've got to have fun doing it. Now, I could, I could certainly come in, you know, I've had these comments, it needs to be podcaster chill, man. You know, you just got you just gotta tone things down. You gotta you gotta take it calm, cool, and collected. That's what you need to do because it's it's a midnight hour. Now I could do that bullshit, but I wouldn't have fun with it. And then it would be like a job, and then finally a chore, and then finally like an albatross around my neck where I gotta come in twice a week and do that shit. No, I'm gonna have fun doing it. I've had people comment and say, you know, just be you. 
I hate to tell you that, guys, this is my wife. It took her, she told me the other day, it took her several years to realize that me is those voices. You know, I do those voices. That's it. I, I do that shit all the time. I, uh, um, I guess it's a, a result of, you know, my upbringing and, and the abuse and that hard life and everything. But I, I do that in my normal everyday life. And when I go into the, the more serious mode, that kind of is me putting on a, a weird face sometimes. I'm able to do it and I enjoy doing it, but uh, I'm, I'm going to be me. And being me means that, hey, I'm going to have fun doing this stuff because I want to be able to do this show over an extended period of time. And I also, hey, you know, at one point I was thinking, oh, I need to, I need to be like Joe Rogan. You know, I need to bring people in and do all this shit. No, how about, how about no? How about I just be me and do the show like I want to do? All right. So that's what I want to do. If you guys don't like it, I'm sorry. There's going to be some really good information. There's going to be some fun stuff to talk about, some scary stuff to talk about. But I'm here to, to try to help protect people and businesses from the type of person that I used to be. I'm also here to grow as a person as well. That's part of the Brett Johnson show. If it wasn't like that, I'd call it the cybercrime show or some bullshit like that. But it's the Brett Johnson show. So that's what I'm serious about doing is that, all right? Now, just wanted to get that out there. The other thing I wanted to mention, the last episode that I did was about hiring felons in tech. I wanted to do a bit of a follow-up on that because I didn't really mention everything. I Well, I did mention everything I wanted to, but some other things came to mind after I recorded that episode. So I wanted to just touch on that again. That's one of the things I'm finding out about doing a show like this is that not every topic is self-sustained or self-contained in each episode. There'll be some bleed over. There'll be some things that I allude to in past episodes and maybe I'll redo episodes and things like that. It's just part of it. I, I guess that's the way a show like this goes. It grows and, and things get added in and redone or mentioned afterwards and things like that. Uh, hiring felons. I mentioned on that show, and I, I want to I reiterate that. I truly believe that the best opportunity for a felon is to start his or her own business, to be your own boss. All right. I fully believe that because, you know, you're working for somebody, you've got to depend on them to first hire you. Your fellow employees, they're probably, depending on what type of you know business you go into, they're probably going to be looking at you if you're working for somebody else. If anything ever happens at that business, who do they look at first? They look at the felon, regardless of what your conviction's for. So you've got all these issues that are going on, and it's more than that. So I am, I've been doing this legal thing for several years now. I'm trusted in cybersecurity communities. I'm well-respected in cybersecurity communities. I was recently named as chief criminal officer of Arcos Labs. Arcos Labs is a fantastic security company. The CEO over there, his name is Kevin Goschok. He's an outstanding human being. He understands cybercrime and he knows how to stop a lot of those crimes, all right? Now, he, he wanted to bring me in as chief criminal officer. They did a background check on me. And of course, I failed the background check. This is something that everyone out there that's looking to work in tech needs to understand and listen to. If you fail the background check, there's a whole shitload of companies that you're not going to be able to work with. You're a felon. You're going to fail the background check. That doesn't mean a company won't hire you. There's a whole lot of companies that do hire felons. But the type of position that you're going to be 
hired for is, de is really dependent upon what's going on. For example, I work with Arcos Labs. I am not on the Arcos Labs payroll. I'm considered more of a contract employee because if I were on the payroll, a lot of the companies that Arcos works with wouldn't be working with Arcos because of insurance concerns, things like that. I'm not allowed. There's a lot of data that I can't look at. I can't look at PII, stuff like that, because of insurance and privacy concerns with hiring a felon. That's the same type of problem that you guys or anybody, any felon out there is going to have trying to get into the tech industry. Not saying you can't get a job, but I am saying to taper your expectations and understand the problems with that, all right? If you're failing the background check, that's a problem when it comes to working with some of these companies that deal in PII, deal with, with, with data that, that's related to other companies and the internal workings of these companies and things like that. You're going to have problems getting that type of employment, okay? Just understand, you've got to be able to pass a background check to do it. If not, those insurance companies that, that fund these other companies or you know protect these other companies, they're going to say, oh, hell no, absolutely not. That's why I'm more of a contract em employee with Arcos. Now, I do a lot of good with Arcos. Arcos is a great company. You know, I, I the clients, customers, potential customers, everybody else, I, and, and, and also the employees of Arcos, I add a lot of value, okay? And... But please understand that that conviction may limit you, especially, my God, especially if it's something to do with cyber tech, something like that, okay? That's one of the reasons I say, again, look about going into business for yourself. Let me say this, and I alluded to it last time. I'm going to say it one more time, then we'll move on to the next topic. Criminals are entrepreneurs, period. Criminals are entrepreneurs, and they're, they're a different type of entrepreneur than your legitimate entrepreneurs out there, okay? And, and it's not just criminal activity. Criminal entrepreneurs are actionable, where you get a lot of entrepreneurs out there that have a good idea. They just never act on it. They just sit on their ass all the time and not do anything. Criminals don't sit on their ass. We know this. Any criminal out there that's listening to this, you know this. We are actionable. We put these ideas into action. So we take action as entrepreneurs, which is a very unique thing. The goal or the idea should be using that type of mentality to do legitimate things. You can start your own business. I would, I would urge everyone out there to do that. Be your own boss. That way you decide your own fate. That's exactly what I had to do. And, then, and as I said with the last episode, that's exactly what happened with a lot of the more successful people that I know. So just bear that in mind, all right? Moving right along. I've had a more than a few shout outs from people in the Appalachians and Eastern Kentucky. God bless you all. Serious. I mean, uh, took me a long time to say that I was proud to be from Eastern Kentucky, but by God, I am, and I wouldn't be from anywhere else if I had a choice. I am proud of that area. I'm extremely proud of the people who uh, who fight hard every single day to do the best they can in an economically depressed area like that. Very few opportunities uh, for people there, and those that uh, that fight every day to work hard to support their them and theirs. More power to you. Much respect to you uh, for for the people who you know. It's a decision to do illicit shit. It's a decision that I made and it has bad consequences. I know that a lot of people out there 
that may listen have that that idea that hey, I got to do this, I got to do this, but you don't. But I wish the best for you. Okay, but I just want to give a shout out to the Appalachians in Eastern Kentucky. I love you. God bless you. A lot of respect right here. All right, now moving right along. Looks like I just had to mention it. Elon Musk. Elon Musk wants to buy Twitter. He wants to buy Twitter and turn it private. He says that's the only way that we can have true free speech. Personally, I'm like, shit, let him buy it. Yeah, we'll get Donald Trump back. I don't give a shit about that. I don't like Trump. I don't like Biden. I don't like any of them. Personally, I have not seen any politician yet that has given a damn about anybody but themselves on either side. Sorry if you're hard, hard right wing. Sorry if you're far left wing. I don't see anybody on any side that gives a damn about anybody but themselves. That's the last of the poli politics I'm going to talk about today. Because Lord knows I can go on it. But my expertise is in cyber, cybercrime, and identity theft. The rest of that shit, just an opinion. But I do think, hey, might not be bad. Might not be bad let Elon take over Twitter. He offered $50 to $54.20 a share. That's like a 40% increase over the January price. Now, last year, Twitter was going for 70-some bucks. But it's not going like that now. So, uh, He's offered to buy the whole damn thing, turn it private, says it's uh, it's really the only way to make free speech there. You know, let's be honest. No one goes to Twitter for civilized discourse. We go to Twitter to bitch, moan, and complain or watch other people bitch, moan, and complain. So, you know, turn it wide open. I'm for it being, as long as it's not illegal activity, turn it wide open. But Brett, but Brett, there's so much misinformation. There's so much fake news. Well, it's not just on Twitter. It's every place else. But at some freaking point, people have to learn to start being responsible for themselves. That trust but verify stuff. You know, if you're if you're believing some Twitter feed from some guy just because it's went viral, you're believing that story, there's something wrong with you. And it, it's common. That happens quite a lot. You know, there's bots in place. There's nation states in place. There's fake news. There's everything else. But... I think if you turn it wide the fuck open, just let it go. Let anybody bitch about whatever they want to as long as they're not hurting other people or doing illegal activity. I'm fine with that. Twitter is what it is. Twitter is Twitter is just Twitter. Twitter is not the world. Twitter is Twitter. <laughs> okay, that's my thought. Uh, Frank James, the subway shooter. He got caught yesterday. Thank God for that. Outstanding job on the part of law enforcement. There is a lesson to be learned if you are a criminal from this. Turns out that the way they identified Frank James, the shooter on the New York subway, guy walks in, he's got smoke bombs, he's got a Glock, he's got a hatchet. I don't know what else he's freaking got there. But he's wearing a mask and everything else. He uh, opens up fire, injures, I think the last count was like 29, probably more than that by now. Shot like 13, no one... Uh, uh, grievously wounded you know no life-threatening injuries thank god but the way they identified this idiot is he dropped a key to a rented van in the subway car where he did the shooting here's a here's a criminal criminal activity 101 don't take shit that can be linked to your identity to the scene of the crime we used to teach that shit in Shadow Crew. You carrying fake IDs? Don't carry three or four fake IDs. Don't carry your real ID with your fake ID. Cut all that shit to the side. 
So just be aware of it. If you're if you're out there committing criminal activity, it might be a good idea that you make sure you ain't carrying nothing that <laughs> connects the real you to the scene of the crime. Frank dropped the key. They found out who he, who his ass was pretty quick. Dude calls them. Evidently, he called them and said, hey, uh, you guys are looking for me. I'll be at this address, this, this, this. There's some stuff I want to clear up. Well, they show up and his ass wasn't there. I guess he thought twice about that. His ass wasn't there, but as he was walking away, some other bystander saw him, alerted the police. They picked the guy up. They're going to give him life in prison, deservedly so. That, um, you know, that's an ideological attack. I talk about that with cybercrime. There's three different motivations for cybercrime. Status, cash, ideology. Status. Who can you impress? Are you Do you do crime to impress your criminal peers? In cybercrime, some of these criminal communities are millions of members large. So if you can do something that no one else there can do, you get status. You gain the respect of every single person there. And respect equates to more profit as a criminal. So, and in the real world, do people commit crime because of status? Yeah, that's why, uh, I don't know if it was the shooter on uh, the guy who killed Lennon, John Lennon, not VI. <laughs> I don't know if it's the guy that killed John Lennon. I forgot what that's not. Mark David Chapman. I don't know if it's Mark David Chapman or the guy who shot Reagan, John Hinckley. I think it's John Hinckley that was trying to impress Jodie Foster because he had a thing for her in the movie Taxi Driver. But you crimes are committed for status often. Most of the time on both sides, whether you're in the real world or online, most crime is you know, cash-based, looking to steal money, looking to cash out like that. Um, Frank James' crime looks to be ideologically motivated. And, and here's the other big takeaway. It turns out that these days, most crimes have some element of cyber involved. For example, Frank James had posted over 400 videos to, twi to Twitter. <laughs> he had posted over 400 videos to uh, uh, to YouTube talking about the mayor, talking about the problems of the United States, blah, blah, blah. All these, all these things that should have been a big red friggin' flag that this guy is dangerous. I don't get that. I don't get how all these videos are allowed on Facebook or allowed on YouTube, every place else, and nobody's alerting or taking the videos down or anything else like that. We, we need to do a better job at that stuff. Crime overall. You know, it's, uh, there's, it seems like politicians, if, if a politician is running for office, that they're talking about how bad crime but once any politician gets elected, they talk about how the crime rate has fallen. Let me explain that. So the crime rate, has the crime rate fallen? Yes, because we no longer arrest people for the shit that we used to arrest people for. All those marijuana people that we used to pick up, they would smoke marijuana, sell marijuana, whatever the hell they were doing, possession of marijuana, whatever that was, we used to pick them up and charge them. That would contribute to the overall crime rate. We don't do that shit anymore, all right? We don't charge a lot of the people that we used to charge, which results in a lower crime rate. You take the shoplifting stuff that was going on out in California. Nobody was charging these people. That contributes to a lower crime rate. Does that mean that crime has fallen? No. If you look at violent crime, violent crime is going through the friggin' roof. Through the roof right now. It's horrible, all these violent crimes that are out there. So... 
As a matter of fact, it's reaching the, the 90s levels. And the interesting thing, I don't know if anybody's ever read Freakonomics. All right. I've read Freakonomics. I like it. I've read it a few times. And uh, the thing about Freakonomics is there's, in, there's two books. I forgot who the writers are. There's two books. The first book talks about, uh, there's a section in there talking about the crime wave of the 90s, how it was going completely out of control. And, you know, you had you had uh, reactions like the uh, the glass windows reaction where uh, uh, Daryl Gates and Rudy Giuliani and company, they uh, instituted this thing. that If you just see a broken window, you know, we're going to take care of the small stuff. And that way it'll lead to us taking care of the big stuff and communities will be much better. Complete bullshit. But the writers said that all of a sudden crime started to drop. All right inexplicably. And what they said, the, the answer for that was, was Roe v. Wade. They said that the, the Supreme Court, when they legalized abortion, that the children that would have been born weren't. The children that would have been born that parents didn't want, they would have been raised, you know, incorrectly, not loved everything else, and they would have turned into criminals. And the writers juxtapose that or compare that to what happened in Czechoslovakia. All right. Now, what's interesting is, you know, there's this thing called causation and correlation. Correlation does not necessarily mean causation. That story in Freakonomics, and Lord knows I've used it before, but that story, it, it said that the reason the crime rate fell was because of abortion laws, abortion being legal. There was no no attempt to try to prove that or show the cause or anything else that that was the cause. He just kind of said it, pulled it out of his ass. I even over the years, I thought it was such a nifty story and everything else. I've even said that over the years. I no longer believe that shit. I, that's bullshit. Got to tell you, I think it's complete BS. All right, because we're seeing crime right now, violent crime going through the roof. There was an article yesterday about in Los Angeles, 17 gangs, the gang leaders have told these gang members to follow the rich people around and steal their cars, steal their watches, steal whatever expensive shit they've got. And they open up fire immediately, take it and run. So what causes this violent crime? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not the, the, I don't have access to the data, but I can tell you that I don't think it's going anywhere. Okay. So we, we see a tax mainly because of cash and ideology. Can, do we see attacks because of ideology? Yes, we do. Look at Portland, look at Minneapolis, that's ideological types of attacks. Look at the, the Capitol, that's an ideological attack. All those riots are ideological, ideologically driven. You, you have people in there that also join those attacks for cash as they're looting and things like that. Are ideological attacks going to calm down? Shit, no, they're not going to calm down. They're going to keep ramping up. The economy is going to hell in a handbasket. We've got the highest inflation in 40 years. In 40 years. Gas prices going through the roof. We're worried about the supply chain. People can't get all the food they want. Or, you know, you go to the, you go to the grocery store now and it's not what they got. It's, what they, it's not what you want. It's what they got is, what you, is the idea with grocery shopping these days. So when you've got an environment like that, when people are worried about the economy, worried about their jobs, worried about interest rates, inflation, everything, gasoline prices, all that, yeah, you're going to see a lot more crime pop up. You absolutely are. And again, I, I, don't, I don't think that's political to say that, but I, I think that we need to be aware of that. And 
you know, as the show ends, we say, stay safe, stay secure, stay vigilant. This is one of these things where it's very important to understand your surroundings, to have that situational awareness. You know, when you go, I've been to Brazil a few times. When you go to Brazil, you don't wear an expensive, this is a Seiko, but you don't put on a Rolex or an Omega and run around town in Brazil. You don't do that shit because you're not going to wear it very long if you do. So and that requires situational awareness. Know your environment. If I were in Los Angeles now, I mean, there's, there's no way, if, and I don't have a lot of money, but there's no damn way that I would flaunt things or, or try to stick out in a crowd. I say the same thing online. You know, most attacks are cash-based unless you're that, and, and most attacks are lowest hanging fruit, unless you're that idiot that's on Facebook saying you've got 8,000 Bitcoins. Then you're a victim, and then it's not lowest hanging fruit. Somebody's going to come and get you. So just bear that in mind. Today's episode, <laughs> the three necessities of cybercrime. That's what we're talking about. What makes cybercrime successful? Why is it never a single attacker which seeks to victimize you or your organization? So the three necessities of cybercrime, gathering data, committing crime, cashing out. All three of those necessities work in conjunction. If they, they have to work in conjunction. If they don't, the crime fails. The problem with that is that a single criminal, one guy, sometimes girl, one guy can't do all three things. He can do one thing, sometimes two. Rarely can he do all three. And that is why you have the dark web forums, the marketplaces, Telegram, Discord, Facebook groups, Reddit, everything else. Those channels, those large communication channels like that, allow that one specific criminal to network with criminals who are good in areas where he, sometimes she, is not. So let's break down what those three things mean. So gathering data, that's the PII, the personal identifying information. It's your social, your date of birth, your driver's license number, your background check, it's stuff like that. It's your uh, bank account login information, it's your credit card numbers, it's your PayPal credentials, it's your credentials overall. It's all that information, but it's also any tool that is needed to commit that specific type of crime. It can be a spoofed phone number so that instead of seeing the phone number that the criminal is calling from, you see the phone number of the Social Security Administration, the Sheriff's Office, your financial institution, something like that. It can be a SOX 5 proxy so that while his box, he's physically located in maybe Ghana or Florida or wherever, he can make it appear that he's in New York, California, Canada, Brazil, wherever he wants it to appear. It's those tools. It's mini cats so he can harvest your credentials out of RAM. It's looking for outward facing SMB. So it's, 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 the, it's the PII, the information, and whatever tool is needed to commit that crime. That goes under the gathering the data aspect. And then once that's done, you commit the crime and then finally cashing out, putting cash in pocket. Cashing out is more than just having stolen funds sent to an account. You have to be able to convert those stolen funds to literal cash in pocket or you are worthless. So all three of those things have to work together. Now let's use a couple of examples. Credit card theft, for example. So what do I need? If I'm doing credit card theft, I need your, so gathering data, I need your credit card numbers. I may need some PII, some personal information on you. I may need your background check if I'm going to do an account takeover on your credit card. I may need um, a SOX 5 proxy. So I want to make sure that when I place an order with your credit card information, that 
the merchant or retailer that I'm defrauding, I want to make sure that my IP address matches the same zip code that the actual card holder is in. So I need a SOX5 proxy to do that, okay? When I buy credit card information, ideally I want credit card information that's in my state, makes it much easier for me. If it's not in my in my hometown, if and it's in my state, then or in an adjacent state next to where I live. Okay, so I'm in Alabama. If I was doing credit card fraud, I would look for credit card details in Birmingham. If I can't find it in Birmingham, what about the outlying areas or the state itself? If none of those are available because it's fucking Alabama, if none of those are available, then I'll look for Georgia, Mississippi, Florida, something like Tennessee, something like that. All right, because it puts my physical ad, my physical location in the area of the card holder. That way I can just go get a prepaid cell phone. I don't have to worry about getting a SOX5 proxy and having that fail or bleed out or anything else like that. I can just use a cell phone, comes up with the same IP location range as the actual card holder at that point. So the tools, the information, then I go and I commit the crime. I hit somebody for laptops or something like that. So I would go to the merchant. Uh, maybe I need a spooked phone call as well for a tool. I would go to the merchant defraud the merchant for the laptop. Then what happens when I get the laptop or what have you? I need to sell its ass someplace. Where do I sell it? Well, maybe eBay, maybe Amazon, Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, someplace like that. Sell it. So then I have the money sent to where? To a bank account. Well, that's another tool that I need. So let's back up to that the first necessity, gathering data and getting tools. So I'll probably need a bank account or a prepaid debit card. So I need to get that too, because I probably don't want to sell stolen merchandise and have the funds delivered to my real bank account. That's a stupid ass move. All right. So you need all that stuff in conjunction. So once you have the money sent to the bank account, that you, you know, the fraudulently open bank account, once you have the money sent to that, how do you get money out? Well, maybe you've got an ATM card, you can do that, or maybe you're able to convert it over to crypto, cash out like that, or send it to another bank account where you have, or a prepaid debit card where you have the ability to withdraw the funds, or someone has the ability to withdraw the funds through an ATM. All right. If I'm doing business email compromise, I'm going to give a couple of examples of this. If I'm doing business email compromise, how does that work? So gathering the data, I'm going to go to LinkedIn. I'm going to find me a couple of targets. Somebody who works in payroll, a CEO. I'm going to pull all the information on both those individuals that I can. Get the background reports, make sure I got the socials, the dates of birth, everything else like that. So that gets all the, all the personal information. I'm going to find out their email addresses, all that kind of stuff. Find out as much details about them as I possibly can recon the company as much as I possibly can. So that's the gathering information aspect. What kind of tools do I need to commit business email compromise? Well, I'm, I may need a spoof phone number, so I'm going to get that just in case. Um, may need a proxy. I'm going to probably most likely need a Unicode domain. For anybody who doesn't know, that's the number one way that business email compromise is committed today. So for example, I own anglerfish.com. I can register a Unicode domain in what looks like anglerfish.com, except one of the I's is not an English alphabet I. Comes with security certificates, everything else. Unless you're really looking at it, can't tell the difference. All right, so get those tools together. Then what will happen? I will spearfish the person that's in payroll. Get their credentials because 80% of everyone uses the same or similar passwords across multiple websites. So I'm gonna get the login credentials for that person's email. I'm just gonna log into the email and sit and read. I'm not going to do anything else right now. I'm going to sit and read, okay? So I'm going to sit and read that. 
find the, the proper target, the CEO, read that relationship, get the semantics down, everything else. And then what's going to happen, that Unicode domain that I got is going to be in the name of the company, except one of the letters is not going to be an English alphabet letter. It's going to be the name of the company. I'm going to fashion an email that's the CEO at that Unicode domain. I go back into the payrolls email provider or email system. I block the real CEO, delete his contact, insert my Unicode contact instead, and then I send an email to payroll. I need you to send this money over here. You know, instead of it, okay, instead of it regularly going to this bank account, it now goes to this other bank account. And it works like a charm. It is not difficult to get a couple million dollars sent to a bank account. Of course, here's the thing though. Just because you have a couple of million dollars sent to a bank account does not mean that you have profited a couple of million dollars. You have to be able to get that money out of the bank account and convert it to cash in pocket. There's a big difficulty in doing that. As a matter of fact, if you are a victim of business email compromise and you notify the FBI within like 72 hours, the FBI has an 80% success rate of getting those funds back because it's difficult to get that kind of money out of an account. Okay, so it takes a lot of preparation. And that's the problem with these three necessities. Okay, all three have to work in conjunction. If they don't, the crime fails. You can, you can gather all the tools you need. You can commit the, the crime properly and, and perfectly like with business email compromise. You can even have the money sent to a bank account. But unless you're able to get it out, that third necessity fails. Why even worry about any of that shit then? Okay, so that's the point. Another example, Tesco Bank, all right? To show you these three necessities, gathering data, committing crime, cashing out. 2016, November of 2016, on Alphabay, Alphabay at that point in time was the largest dark web criminal marketplace and forum on the planet, 240,000 members. And just to give you an idea about how things have grown, Shadow Crew, the site that I ran and, and came up with, was shut down 2004. We ended with 4,000 members. Fast forward to 2017 when Alphabay was shut down, 240,000 members. Fast forward two more years to 2019, Black Market is shut down, another dark web marketplace, 1.15 million members. These numbers continue to explode and they're going to continue to explode. They're not, criminals are not going anywhere. But November of 2016 on Alphabay, someone within that 240,000 member structure on the forums, they make one post. They say, hey, for the past year, I've been able to hit Tesco Bank for $1,000 a week, no flags. Two and a half weeks later, Tesco's hit for $2.5 million. So how did that happen? Understand it from that the three necessities of cybercrime. That individual who posted that, he had gathered the data. He had the information, but he didn't really know how to scale the crime up. He certainly didn't know how to cash it out. But by him posting it within the forums, someone within that 240,000 member structure, they see it. They say to themselves, doesn't look like he's bullshitting. He's not bragging. Looks like he's just telling the truth. Let me talk to him. So he does. That second individual knew how to properly commit the crime. Now, if Alpha Bay were still up, and it's not, 
because the Fed shut it down July 5th of 2017. But if it were still up, you could actually track it from that point. That second individual posts advertisements on Alphabase saying, hey, I'm looking for cashiers. Send me your resumes. We're going to make a lot of money. He gets, he gets cashiers from the EU, the UK, Brazil, the United States, cashes out to the tune of $2.5 million. It's that structure of cybercrime. That platform that changes a $1,000 a week crime into a $2.5 million crime. Now, it goes a little bit further than that because I've spoken in the past about how 90% of every single attack uses known exploits. How did it look like from the good guy side of things? Well, 2015, FCI Visa issues a global warning. The warning says, hey, you financial institutions need to watch out for criminals using rooted Android devices, stolen debit card information, signing on to cardless payment apps, and laundering money through that. Tesco ignores those warnings. Now, for that crime to really be successful, you've got to have massive amounts of debit card numbers. Figuring out the algorithm for debit card numbers or credit card numbers, pretty damn near impossible, except not so much in Tesco's case because... Those card numbers were sequential. Not supposed to do that, but they were. They were sequential. So you buy a stolen Tesco debit card number, add a digit to it, you've got another stolen Tesco debit card number. At the same time, Tesco starts to see test runs because say one damn thing, experienced criminals test the shit out of everything before they start the attack. They will do test runs. They will make sure their operational security is all right. They will make sure their withdrawal mechanism is working. They will make sure the entry and exits are well done. Everything else is all their ducks are in a row. And once they are, they will hit as hard and as fast as they possibly can. Tesco sees these test runs and they ignore them until $2.5 million is stolen. And then what happens? Then Tesco literally shuts down every single debit card they've got in their system leaving people stranded in, in airports and foreign countries, everything else like that. That is what happens. There's another example, because I like giving these examples, these little stories too. The other example is the pandemic stimulus fraud. So if you think about it, there were two big areas of fraud during the stimulus. The government, the U.S. government, they were afraid of the economy going belly up, which is kind of what's happening to it right now. They were afraid of the economy going belly up. They wanted to implement stimulus programs. The rule is, and I used to teach this as a criminal, never do anything out of desperation because when you act out of desperation, it results in poor choices. The U.S. government was desperate. They enacted stimulus programs with absolutely no security in place. In fact, the CARES Act took away the security that was in place. So, as a result, you had two main types of fraud. You had EIDL, but the two big ones were unemployment and the Paycheck Protection Program. Unemployment, a few hundred, a couple thousand dollars, up to maybe a $10,000 initial deposit. Paycheck Protection Fraud, or the program would give you $2 million. You could, as long as you kept the loan under $2 million, it was all self-certified. The government said they weren't going to audit and they were going to forgive the loan. So those were the two big areas of potential fraud for fraudsters to hit. For some reason, fraudsters, the more experienced fraudsters, hit unemployment. Why? Well, Brett, they, we read all kinds of stories about fraudsters uh, defrauding the Paycheck Protection Program. Yes, yes, you do. And you read all kinds of stories about those idiots being arrested because, again, 
you're going to get $2 million. What do you have to have for $2 million? You got to have a place to get it deposited, which means a bank account. The government instituted these programs quickly, which means for a bank account. Now, as a fraudster, I can go and open up a fraudulent bank account, okay? It's not going to have any traffic. It's not going to be aged. What happens on that fraudulently open bank account if I immediately have a $2 million deposit sent from the U.S. government? Do you think it might raise some flags? Shit, yes, it might raise some flags. You ain't going to get that money out. That's why when you read about paycheck protection program fraud and you see all these people arrested, they have used typically their own damn bank account. There's, they've got that link. <laughs> it's like Frank James. They've, they've, they've taken some piece of evidence to the scene of the crime, which links them to the crime. Idiots. The more experienced fraudsters understood this. So they pivoted toward unemployment fraud. That's why every, all these states get hit or defrauded their unemployment offices for billions of dollars per state because it's very easy to get your ass down to Walmart, buy a prepaid debit card, have $10,000 sent on that, or sign on to one of these fintech services where you can have the $10,000 sent into the service and immediately have it converted over to Bitcoin, Monero, what have you. That's why unemployment fraud. What you find out, is that oftentimes the laundering mechanism will determine the fraud or the type of crime that's committed. And think about your laundering mechanisms. What have you got? You got bank accounts, you got prepaid debit cards, you got fintech services, you got gift cards, you got prepaid cards, you got uh, crypto, things like that. The, the laundering mechanism will determine the type of crime that is being committed. Remember that, that's a criminal tip of the day. Now, We've talked about the three necessities of cybercrime, gathering data, committing crime, cashing out. I've said that a single criminal can't do all three. Why? Now, I've always been good. He can do one or two. I've always been good about committing the crime, cashing that crime out. All right. I can gather the data, but I'm not really great about it. Why would I spend my time and effort to do that when someone else is better at it than I am? But you find out a lot of the times that necessity, one of those necessities is not filled because there's a skill gap. Criminal simply doesn't know how to do it. Those people who are stealing data, they know what's done with the data, but do they really know the dynamics of how to commit that crime? Most of the time, not. Most of the time, not. So there's a skill gap. Or maybe, you know, you can commit the crime, but you ain't got no idea. Yeah, I can have that $2 million sent to a bank account, but how do I get it out of the bank account? So you ain't got no idea how to do that. So you rely on somebody to do it for you and you give them 40% of the cash, all right? So there's a skill gap or there's a geographic problem. You, the criminal is simply in a geographic area where they can't do one of those necessities. Now, what do I mean by that? Usually it hits, hits with the cashing out aspect. If you go back to the pandemic and the stimulus fraud, a lot of the fraudsters who were hitting unemployment programs were not in the United States. They were in the Ukraine, they were in Russia, they were in Brazil, they were in the EU, UK, places like that. Well, they had data, they had all access to all the data they would need and the tools they would need to commit the crime because there were really no tools needed because no security was in place. They could commit the crime because again, no security was in place. But even though they could commit the crime, even though they had access to all the information, they had, they'd gathered the data and the tools, 
because they're in a foreign country, because they're in the Ukraine, what happens if they try to withdraw those funds in the Ukraine? So you're filing for unemployment in California, the withdrawal is taking place in the Ukraine. It might accidentally raise a few flags. So you had to rely on money mules in the United States. And typically you give them about 40% of whatever that cash out is, all right? So it's either a geographic problem or it's a skill gap, which means that you're not able to do all three necessities. It doesn't mean you can't, but like me with gathering data, if someone's able to deliver data efficiently, effectively, and a much higher value data than what I could personally get, why wouldn't I do that? It makes the crime more successful when I go to commit it. So understand that skill gap, geographic problem. Those are the three necessities of online crime. That's why online crime is so successful. What happens is, is you network with other people who are good in areas where you are not. You plug and play those people. All right, you work together, you share and exchange information. That's also why it's never a single attacker. I hear people all the time, I'd like to know who stole my credit card. Well, dude, there's a whole shitload of people responsible for that. Even if you got skimmed in a restaurant or a hotel, somebody sold them a skimmer, somebody sold them the, the, the plastic card that your data goes on, somebody taught them how to do it, and then you got the person that's doing it. And the person who's doing it is probably selling it to somebody else. So you got all these people that are involved in all these crimes. Same thing with breaches, same thing with credit card fraud online, uh, refund fraud, everything else. It's never a single person that's attacking you. It's been a kind of a quick episode today. Hope, uh, hope everybody's got some value out of it. I'm trying to, uh, you know, certainly I could come in and I could, I could be more structured with the way I do these episodes. You know, I've already talked about trust. I've talked about the mindset of a criminal. I could have, and then today I talk about the three necessities. I could have put those three together and maybe it makes sense, but I really like the way I'm doing it right now because I'm interspersing things in between. People can pick and choose what they listen to. I am Brett Johnson. This is the Brett Johnson Show. What do we say? We say stay safe. Stay safe, seriously, because things are, things are getting bad some places. And it's, I think it's going to continue to get worse. Stay safe, stay, stay secure, stay vigilant, pay attention to your surroundings, both online and in the real world. Develop that situational awareness. More than that, what do we say? This is the Brett Johnson Show. At the end of the day, just do the right damn thing. I'm Brett Johnson. Until next time, thank you for listening.